Support for WPR comes from the Dram Corporation, sustainable producers of OMRI-listed fertilizers for organic gardening and farming. Made in Algoma, Wisconsin. More information is at dramm.com. Support for WPR comes from Explore Monroe County, from the Elroy Sparta Bicycle Trail to the Warren's Cranberry Festival, featuring artist booths and cranberry marsh tours. More at exploremonroecounty.org. More than you know. Previously on Beta. Well, Freddie should have bad hearing because his ears are melted. You removed it from its original packaging. <gasps> no! It's no longer a collectible. Oh! And now, ladies and gentlemen, the most dangerous trick known to man, the infamous Spikes of Death. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, the groundbreaking cartoonist Barbara Brandon Croft joins us. While I was doing it, I, I actually was concerned that I opened the door, but then I was in the door, so I kind of clogged the door. We don't need another black woman cartoonist we have, Barbara. Also, Jordan Harper on his critically acclaimed L.A. crime novel, Everybody Knows, which features a black bag publicist named Mae Pruitt. A black bag publicist is my term. I did make the term up. She's a publicist who doesn't get the good news out. She keeps the bad news in. But first... Where did they go? Dad? That's a clip from the eerie independent horror film called Skinnamarink. It was written and directed by my fellow Canadian Kyle Edward Ball. Kyle spent seven days shooting the film in his childhood home in Edmonton, Alberta. The budget was $15,000 Canadian, which works out to $11,267.25 in American money. Either way you account for it, the film's a hit. It's made a buzz in horror circles and has made more than a million dollars and counting. If you listen to Beta enough, you know I've seen my fair share of horror movies over the years, but I have never seen one as weird and creepy as Skinnamarink. It makes David Lynch's Eraserhead look like Sleepless in Seattle. And chances are Skinnamarink may leave you sleepless, no matter where you live. Kyle joined us from his unhaunted home in Edmonton to talk about Skinnamarink and how he went from a YouTube channel recreating nightmares to a feature film director. Basically, my channel was people would comment nightmares they've had and I would recreate them. I would use kind of old Hollywood style effects. And I also, because I didn't have access to a bevy of actors, would have to get creative on how I would tell a story. So a lot of implying action instead of directly showing action. And when we did show actors, there would be very little performance. We would rarely, if ever, see their face. Um, over time, I had discovered that I actually kind of liked this style and found it to be kind of quite creepy and subversive. Also, through the life of my channel, I had leaned into the lo-fi of audiovisual format as well, and even doing stuff like playing with old-time radio and old-time cartoon audios to really kind of help uh, buffer the narrative. <laughs> Man, terror of Balloonie Land. 
gonna go upstairs to get some stuff. So I always went into the intention of, of doing a style like that. And that's how I wrote the script. And that's how I filmed it. And I also always had the intention of, okay, if we're not seeing people all the time, probably be a little bit uncanny. Let's see if this pans out. And I would say for the most part, people have been reciprocated that and said, oh, it's uncanny. It's strange. It's weird. And I can't be more thankful that 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 people are, are responding the way that I intended. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that makes it so distinct. One of the things that really captured my attention is the disturbing sound design. There's a lot of analog snap and crackle as well as some hissing and humming. And it's hard to make out some of the dialogue, which there isn't that much of. What were you trying to achieve with the audio? Yeah, yeah. So I wanted it to buffer the atmosphere. So at the end of the day, I really wanted it to sound and feel like an old movie from the 70s and not just like, let's say you watch the remastered, restored version of The Exorcist. I wanted to feel like a movie that was forgotten and not taken care of. You're... So that's why I had all the hiss and hum and also played with just the regular dialogue and sound effects to sound like it was recorded old. And Mm -hmm. then on top of that, I was even able to do neat stuff with uh, the hiss and hum to even help propel the story. So even change the volume of the hiss and hum to um, do something simple like say, okay, we've changed location or time has elapsed or even do stuff like um, slowly imperceptibly lower the hiss and hum as a scene is supposed to be building as far as tension um, so that the audience is, is, is uh, unconsciously leaning into the sound. So it, it was a great tool. Yeah, and you used it to, to very good effect. And there is that one shot in Skin and Marink where there is dead audio, no hiss yeah. or hum, and that that had that is very powerful. Yeah, I I I I felt so good when I did that, and I don't even know if it's in the original script. I just I I think I just had a, a shot of a dead hallway, and then when I got to editing, I'm like, what if I just cut the audio completely here? I wonder if that would be creepy. Wouldn't that be a neat thing to play with? So I did it. One of the other things, the recurring themes in Skinamarink is the uh, the janky vintage cartoons that are playing on the TV screen. They play a really kind of important supporting role in the film, I'd say, uh, especially this Max Fleischer cartoon from 1936 called Somewhere in Dreamland. Why did you choose to use that cartoon? So here's the fun thing about that. When I was little, my parents had picked up from like some bargain bin just a VHS tape of a bunch of these old cartoons. And um, the Somewhere in Dreamland one, I, I always remembered because it's a it's a beautiful little cartoon, right? Thank you. 
even before Skinamarink, when I was doing Heck, I had reused it. And then when I wrote Skinamarink, I thought this is a perfect thing to feature because it's about a, a little boy and girl, a brother and sister. And it has them fall asleep and go into dreamland. What a what a cool metaphor that I can play with, right? And, and have on the screen and even do things like there's one part where I used it just to imply, okay, both of the kids are asleep right now. So it, it was a great thing to feature. Mm-hmm. And there's a clip, I think it's from a different cartoon. There, there was a clip that you used really in a really interesting way um, where the, there was, it was like, a, what was it? A duck? What? It was a, some animal. No, it was a dog. And then the, the dog, it seemed to be interested in this a duck or something that was able uh, to it, disappear. It was a bunny. And pr- the, uh, Presto bunny, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that a Fleischer cartoon? That's, I don't think that's a Fleischer cartoon, um, but I do know it's actually the, um, a bunch of cartoons down the line, proto precursor to Bugs Bunny. Ah, so right. it's, it's, it's not Bugs Bunny in his true, uh, also copyrighted form, thank God, but, um, <laughs> it's, it's supposedly the the um proto iteration of bugs bunny and it was just a a cartoon character making something disappear and reappear which we see throughout the movie as well Yeah, and it was interesting. I love the way you looped it. Like you, we kept hearing this one phrase from that cartoon over and over. Just the way it was, it was very powerful. Yeah, there's been a very creepy uh, fan art someone did of that exact cartoon character with the dollhouse and its clutches that we see in the movie and blood coming out of the dollhouse. And I'm like, mm. oh, what a creepy. Yeah. Critic Brian Tallarico at RogerEbert.com said that you are, quote, willing to tell horror stories in a way that's both different for the genre and yet also like something we've all experienced before, unquote. Is that sensibility something you were consciously set out to do with, with Skinamarink? Yeah, yeah. I did from the beginning say, okay, what if I told kind of the traditional haunted house story about kids, but told it in a slightly different way? So A, the experimental route, the uncanny route, and also a movie where the little kids are the only characters and the grownups are completely gone. Like usually in horror movies, they'll do something like the grownup is the main character and they're kind of seeing things through the eyes of their children. Like uh, for example, in uh, The Ring. In this movie, I wanted the 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 two children to be 100% the stars of the movie with no grown-up actors to rely on um, because I really wanted us to see it through the children's eyes. How come no one's come yet? I don't know. You wrote and directed Skinamarink, and you've said that the internet was your co-director. How so? It all comes back to Reddit. I had started my YouTube channel, and it wasn't really picking up steam until I started posting videos on Reddit. And on then people on Reddit had really started picking up the channel. 
it never really 100% went viral, but it started getting steam from Reddit. And and another thing too is inspiration from other analog horror on the internet. So, or even just other things like the subreddit liminal spaces, the subreddit weirdcore. Me and my director of photography, Jamie, would use these in our lexicon when we were shaping the look of the movie. Um, then down the line, before I was even finished the final cut of the film, I had cut the trailer for the movie and posted it on the filmmaker subreddit. And that's where we got our distribution deal. So then after that, it really was weird. It always comes back to Reddit. When we had the infamous uh, leak of the movie last year, people talked about it a lot on Reddit. It, it's insane. It's it's It all comes back to the internet and all comes back to to Reddit. And also in a weird way, I explicitly set the movie in a time where the internet quite hadn't quite broke yet. 1995, where the internet existed, but not in a lower middle-class home, like the characters in the movie. Mm-hmm. You actually shot the film in your childhood home. What was that experience like? Oh, it was wonderful. So I went into writing the script with the idea that I would film in my childhood home, it was great. My parents were were fairly accommodating through the whole thing. They were excited to see their baby boy finally make his first little movie, hmm. uh, like real movie, right, so to speak. Not that short films aren't real movies, but his first, you know, big movie. And there was other surreal parts too. Like on the final day, that's the first time we filmed in air quote Kevin's room, which was my room growing up and has since become my mom's office. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just had this weird moment in between takes where I'm like, this is weird. I'm filming a movie in the room that I had, uh, like would have dreams as a kid about filming movies. It's all come hmm. weirdly back to this room. It, it was strange. Yeah. Can you tell us about your creative partner, Joshua Bookhalter, whom the film is dedicated to? For sure. Yes. So my friend Josh, so I had been friends with Josh for years. We worked together um, at a camera store called VizTech in Edmonton. Um, after we stopped working there, we remained close friends. Um, I was looking to track down an assistant director for the movie, and there was a few people I had reached out to but were busy. So my friend Anthony was filming in Calgary, and then there was a few other leads, but they were also busy. And then I thought, okay, well, he doesn't have any assistant directing experience, but I have worked with him. I really like working with him. What if I reached out to Josh? And I was kind of expecting him to be like, uh, no, Kyle. Uh, what really surprised me, he was like, oh, absolutely, Kyle. I'd, I, I'd, be, I'd be thrilled to do it. Yeah, let's do it up. Let's do it up. He was more than gung-ho, more than competent, more than great to work with. And... Unfortunately, he passed away shortly after we, we finished filming, which was heartbreaking. Um, his family have been in incredibly great through this whole process. The audio was still on his computer after he passed, and I had to reach out to them to get the audio. I gave them a little bit of time to, to grieve, but um, 
I, I probably could have frankly waited a little bit longer, but um, they were more than accommodating and, and also even nice enough to understand, you know, I this must be awkward for you, Kyle, to have to reach out to us to get the audio. I know it's probably a difficult thing for you. And editing the movie was, was a challenge because throughout it, I was reminded of Josh, right? Of course, yeah. I'd like to think he's he's proud. He would, sorry, he's not. Oh, yeah, he would, I'm sure he would. He would be. be proud of how the movie turned out. Yes, as you are too, I'm sure. And we're very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Kyle Edward Ball, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on Skinamarink. Awesome. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Kyle Edward Ball is the writer and director of the viral Canadian indie horror film Skinamarink, now streaming on Shudder. You can find out more about Kyle and Skinamarink at wpr.org slash beta. In comics and other forms of media, you see women in terms of their bodies. You see cleavage to sell popcorn. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? I don't want that. I just want these women to be talking. Coming up, the groundbreaking cartoonist, Barbara Brandon Croft. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Barbara Brandon Croft made history with her pioneering comic strip, Where I'm Coming From. She became the first black woman cartoonist to be published nationally by a newspaper syndicate. The strip focuses on a cast of several black women who discuss important social issues like gun violence, racism, and surveillance. The distinct artwork in Where I'm Coming From catches your eye right away. Barbara only draws her characters heads and arms. Now Barbara is out with a collection of selected strips from 1991 to 2005. It too is called Where I'm Coming From. She joined us from her home in Queens to talk about her remarkable career and how she became a cartoonist. Honestly, somebody asked me to be a cartoonist, but I had been um, really trained to be a cartoonist. My father was a cartoonist. Nobody knows that. My dad is Brumsick Brandon Jr. And he had a comic strip, Luther, which was one of three black cartoonists to come into the mainstream press in the late 60s, early 70s. So before Luther, he did cartoons. And even after, he did cartoons. So I was immersed in cartooning. And I honestly didn't think that I was going to be a cartoonist. That was not my plan, my goal. Not that I had a plan or goal. I just didn't know what I was going to be. I went to school for art. I I did not know what I was going to be there. I dabbled in almost everything. It wasn't until I tried to get a job at a magazine and the editor-in-chief there, Marie Brown, she was like, well, you're kind of funny and you draw. Do you think you could do a comic strip? I was like, well, sure. If he can do it, I can do it. You know, I saw my dad (laughs) do it. I could do it. So that's when it hit me. And that's how I got started doing it. Yeah, and you actually worked as an apprentice for your father. Can you tell us about that? So my dad did a daily. So that's a lot of work. Every two weeks, he had to do two weeks of Luther. He applied Zipatone to his strip for skin tone. People don't know what Zipatone is, but it's a a sheet of paper that has dots on it or whatever it has on it. And you adhere it to the original artwork and you cut it out. 
and you burnish it. And it's tedious, you know, it's a lot to do. And he wanted help doing that. And he gave a test to at least me, my brother and myself. But my brother had a really shaky hand. I mean, I won the contest. <laughs> my, <laughs> Congratulations. And, and the, yes. And my brother's drawing of Luther, he had a story, one of his characters, and his drawing was um, really shaky. But that's, mm-hmm. how I, that's how I became the yeah. apprentice. Yeah, so, so once you knew you wanted to become a cartoonist, how did you come up with the idea for where I'm coming from? It wasn't until um, I was trying to come up for an idea. And again, this the magazine that I was coming up for it for um, was Elan, which was an upcoming Black women's magazine that was going to rival Essence. And they were like, could you do it? So I knew what my who my audience was. So my idea, after many ideas, I, didn't, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. But I, I got stuck on the idea of having Black women talking. It was Black Women's Magazine. I was going to have a woman talking to, and, and it was called Where I'm Coming From. So it, I, in my mind, I was going to have um, a different character each time. You know, that's 12 characters a year. That I can do. So that's, that's where it came from. And it seemed to be a good idea. Yeah, turned out, I, I think you're being modest. I'd say it turned out to be a great idea. I heard this cool story about how you created low-budget press kits about where I'm coming from, and you sent these out to syndicates to try to get your strip published. What exactly did you do? Because my dad was in the industry, I had a clue to what how the industry worked. And once I got one paper, I had Detroit Free Press. You know, I sent it to them. They liked it. They started publishing it. I was like, well, this could work. This is something I would like to do. I need more papers. But I knew that what I needed really was a syndicate. So I looked at all the comic pages. And like on the side, you can read different names of syndicates. So I was like King Features, you know, Universal Press, you know, all those different things. And I, would, I wrote them down, found out where they were. I knew what they did was they put together a press kit on whatever strip they have, and they send it out to newspapers to try to sell the strip. So I wanted to sell my strip to them. So I was like, I'm going to put together a press kit of my stuff and I'm going to send it to the syndicates. I got a folder. I cut out all these heads, you know, from my characters. Because again, I'd already been, I was published then, you know, I had this one paper. So I had a bunch of strips and it was a weekly. It wasn't a monthly. So I cut it out and I printed it on, you know, adhesive paper and I pasted it on the folder And then I put in what I thought would catch their attention. I kind of put everybody on blast. You don't have any black women cartoonists. You need to. I have one. You know, here it is. It's already published. So I got rejected by everybody, (laughs) except Mm. for Universal Press Syndicate. Mm. One of the most distinctive things about where I'm coming from is that you just draw the characters' heads and arms, and we don't see their full bodies. Why did you choose to go that way? Well, mostly because in comics and other forms of media, you see women in in terms of their bodies. You see cleavage to sell popcorn. (laughs) You see, you know, you got to have these legs or you got to have the tiny waist, you know, super women. And and I was like, you know what? I don't want that. I just want these women to be talking. And I just wanted to be there where they're coming from, you know, what their point of view is. And it also felt to me like it created a certain intimacy. Um, You'd speaking directly to the reader. And I have to say that where I saw that done was with Jules Pfeiffer. And I loved 
to see his work. Um, he would appear in the um, the Village Voice, in you know, in New York. That's where I saw his stuff. And I was like, this is this is good. I'm going to try this. And also, when I don't have them talking directly to the reader, I have them talking to each other. But I was hoping to create a atmosphere of intimacy. You you kind of eavesdropping, and you're hearing what these ladies who are friends are talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that was definitely the, the right move because, as you say, yeah, it's more intimate and they're directly addressing the reader. So there's this bond that's established. And you also s- didn't use speech bubbles. Why not? Again, I, I stole a lot from Jules Pfeiffer in that sense. I mean, our, clearly our styles are different, but he didn't use bubbles. He um, just maybe had a line that said, that's what this person is saying at times. Sometimes I tried that. And, you know, after I was doing it for 14 years, so there were a few years that, or maybe a year that I tried bubbles, stylized bubbles, you know, like putting a circle next to the head and things like that. For the most part, I needed room to get out what I wanted to say. So it worked out better for me not to go the traditional route. Sure. I I was very impressed by the incredible amount of detail you used to to describe your nine characters. Can you tell us about a few of your favorite characters? A lot of who they are are facets of me. So somebody like Jackie, who's very high-strung and emotional, it's kind of me, you know. Also, you know, Lakeisha, who's the one that has like the stylized dreads. I use her when I, you know, want to make a strong statement. Then there's, you know, like somebody like Nicole, who's just this cute girl, knows she's cute, doesn't care about much else but being cute and herself, kind of vapid. (laughs) She's not one of my smarter characters. Yeah, the characters are based, some are based on you, but they're also based on your friends, correct? And I'm curious about how they feel about being comic strip characters. Well, they know that it's pieces of them, too. So Mm -hmm. they know that, you know, it's there's no direct correlation. So I think that they were just more excited for me to have a strip. Once where I'm coming from started running in more than 60 newspapers across the country, you made history by becoming the first nationally syndicated African-American female cartoonist. What thoughts went through your mind when that happened? Well, the difference is what happened with me was that I became nationally syndicated in the mainstream press. So I, I always have to acknowledge Jackie Orms, who was a cartoonist in the 30s and 40s. She was doing it for a long time. And she was a Black woman, and she did cartoons in the Black press. Great cartoons and, and socially conscious cartoons. And, but my distinction is, and it started with just being in Detroit. I was the first Black woman to be nationally syndicated in, in the mainstream press, in a newspaper. It's a source of pride. And... A lot of times people say, oh, so you opened the door for so many people. While I was doing it, I I actually was concerned that I opened the door, but then I was in the door. So I kind of clogged the door. It's like, so they're like, you know, we don't need another Black woman cartoonist. We have Barbara. That's a kind of weird feeling as well. Yeah. I can. I never thought about that, but that's a very good point. I can see why that would be a weird feeling. But were there any particular strips that surprised you in terms of the way readers reacted to them? I used to get letters. And this is back when people had to actually pull out a piece of paper and a pen <laughs> and get an envelope and a stamp to take it to the mailbox. Those kind of letters. And 
I, I put them in three categories. Fan letters, people like, oh, you said exactly what I was thinking, or this is, these are the feelings that I have. There were also the letters of people saying, oh, can I get you an autograph? You know, and sending me a, a self-addressed stamped envelope. But the third one was what I called my not-so-fan letters. And people saw where I'm coming from and the women talking as being anti-men, or which is stunning to me, and anti-white. Because they're, they're Black women talking, they must be anti-men and anti-white. That was kind of... Surprising and not surprising, you know, uh, my father got these kinds of letters 30 years before I was doing it. That's the kind of thing that makes me, that kind of empowers me. You know, I was like, oh, I hit your button. <laughs> I must be doing something right. You know, it's like there's something that you're seeing perhaps about yourself that is making you feel that angry that you have to write and say, one person told me that I should go back to Africa and I should oh, take yeah. Jesse Jackson with me. <laughs> it's oh, like, I'm but sorry. I don't know Jesse it's, Jackson. I, I was really struck just reading reading through your book, just how the strips seem like you just wrote them today. You, you know, there's your timely topics. You're covering timely topics like surveillance, gun violence, school shootings, racism. And it's been almost 20 years since you stopped doing where you're coming from. How are you able to be so forward-looking in in terms of your your strips. You know, it's interesting. If you talk about some of these subjects, you find that things haven't changed that much. I recently had an exhibit at um, the Ohio State University, Billy Ireland, and it's an exhibit we put together of my work and my dad's work, and it's called Still. It's not just Luther's, all of his stuff, and it's just my where I'm coming from because that's what I did. It talked about the same subjects by each image that we had. The only thing you put we put by it was the year that it came out. And it's kind of stunning to know that what my dad did in 1966 is something that I could talk about in 1993 or 2003 or 2013 or 2023. I just yeah. did another strip and it's, it's the same thing that keeps happening. I didn't intentionally try to make it Timeless, but I find that if you talk about real stuff and it's true and you try to express the humanity in all of us, that's kind of a, a never ending theme. And you can look back and say, oh, yeah, that's what happened. And they're like, oh, that's what is happening. Yeah, very well said. What did your father think of where I'm coming from? He was very proud of what I was doing and, and he liked it a lot. He's, I, there's a story, and this is true because I saw it on video, that he was saying that somebody said to him that, I think your daughter's a better cartoonist than you are. His response was, well, she had a very good teacher. <laughs> she had a better teacher. That's what he said. I'm like, so that's not a better cartoonist than my dad. But, you know, he, he was always in good humor, and he always knew the right thing to say. Hmm. Yeah. 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 What impact do you think where I'm coming from has had on comic strips that came after? I've heard from um, young women, cartoonists, black women who were like, oh, we love you. I was like, you do? I was like, you know my stuff? And they say that it, it had made an impact on what they did. I, I can't call out what it is that they saw in what I did other than having a role model, other than I can imagine myself doing it because I saw her do it. There's something nice about being a role model. I can't say exactly what they've taken from my stuff. I did meet Keith Knight, 
who does um, the K Chronicles, superior cartoonist at the CXC Cartoon Crossroads in Ohio. He got the big award. And when he was receiving his reward he, award, he called out me and my dad. He's like, for the people who came before him. And that meant a lot to me. I thought that was classy. So I think we made an impact. I know we did. I feel like I did. That's kind of a good feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, it should be, definitely. Barbara Brandon Croft, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on where I'm coming from. And I'd like to offer belated congratulations to you and your father for having your work in the Library of Congress. Yes, thank you. Barbara Brandon Croft is the creator of the groundbreaking comic strip, Where I'm Coming From. You can see some of her work and find out more about Barbara at wpr.org slash beta. The stamp of Elroy is very heavy in this, and uh, he is one of my literary heroes to the point that my dog is named Elroy. Coming up, the critically acclaimed author Jordan Harper talks about his L.A.-based crime novel, Everybody Knows. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Los Angeles burns. Some sicko is torching homeless camps. Tonight, they hit a tent city in the Los Feliz area near the Five. The fire spread to Griffith Park. The smoke makes the sunset unbelievable. The particles in the air slash the light, shift it red. They make the sky a neon wound. May waits outside the secret entrance to the Chateau Marmont. She watches Saturday night tourists wander Sunset Boulevard, their eyes bloodshot from the smoke. They cough and trade looks. They never thought the Sunset Strip would smell like a campfire. That's Jordan Harper reading the opening from his latest novel, Everybody Knows. The great mystery writer Dennis Lehane says that if it were possible for James Elroy and James M. Cain to produce a bastard love child, it would be Jordan Harper. That makes a lot of sense because Elroy is one of Jordan's literary heroes. I first became aware of Jordan when I saw rave tweets for his novel, She Rides Shotgun. That novel ended up winning the 2018 Edgar Award for Best First Novel by an American author. I wouldn't be surprised if Jordan wins another Edgar Award for this follow-up, Everybody Knows. This compelling novel focuses on a publicist named Mae Pruitt. She works for one of LA's most powerful crisis PR firms. Jordan writes so eloquently about the City of Angels that you feel the city is one of the characters. But in Jordan's vision, there aren't many angels. Before he started writing fiction, Jordan worked in television as a writer for the CBS drama series, The Mentalist. He's been able to transfer a lot of what he learned writing TV to his own fiction. Sometimes I I make the joke that I basically got paid to go to storytelling grad school. Uh, being on The Mentalist. The Mentalist was not just uh, a case of the week procedural, but if you remember, like you said, he's a con man and he always had to have a trick that he used to reveal who the killer was, which was an added layer of complication when you're telling a story like that, not to just have a mystery, which is already a difficult sort of story to tell, but have this extra layer of difficulty of having him do this magic trick at the same time. This is brilliant. Lisbon, this is brilliant. You, you are a treasure. You're running this whole operation, aren't you? Hank's just a figurehead to take the heat. Huh? Tell me I'm right. You know, I should have checked the shoes. 
you about looking at me, didn't I? You think you're so damn clever. I learned by helping produce over 140 episodes of the show and writing 14 of them, um, a really strong sense of structure and storytelling that I would equate to like maybe a story to tell, but have this extra layer of difficulty of having him do this magic trick at the same time. And I learned by helping produce over 140 episodes of the show and writing 14 of them, um, a really strong sense of structure and storytelling that I would equate to like maybe if somebody learned how to do architectural drawings before becoming an artist. It's just, it's the most precise and mechanical form of storytelling you can do. And I think it's a really strong base to start off with. Mm-hmm. And you've said, correct me if I'm wrong, that through your, your that your work in television is is kind of like poetry. In the sense that it's very structured, like, yes, like a formal poem. And uh, I think that sometimes poets who don't learn how to write formal poetry and jump immediately into free verse, uh, you can feel it in the in the softness of what they do. Whereas if somebody's kind of had that regimented training and then goes out and runs in the world where there are no rules, I think you get a much stronger writer. So, yeah, I do think they're similar. Yeah, interesting. How difficult was it for you to make the transition from writing for TV to writing novels? Well, you know, I did actually start with short stories. Those were sort of uh, where I began was writing uh, crime-based short stories and uh, actually used those to help me break into television by taking one of my short stories and turning it into a script that helped me uh, get in to the, the world of television. So I've always, you know, had fiction as a primary thing that I wanted to do. Um, and I'm glad I waited to really take on a novel until after I'd done a few years of television, because like I said, I think uh, the training was very good for me. But, um, you know, it was just as much as I loved being on The Mentalist, it was such a relief to get to kind of write in a world where I didn't have to worry about studio notes or, you know, network rules about what you can and can't do and uh, and write something that was just um, more pure, more purely what I want to do as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Your protagonist in your novel, Everybody Knows, is a black bag publicist named May Pruitt. What is a black bag publicist? Well, a, a black bag publicist is my term. I did make the term up uh, for a crisis manager, which is, uh, you know, the, the quick way I explain it in the book is she doesn't she's a publicist who doesn't get the good news out. She keeps the bad news in. She is uh, the person who is tasked with cleaning up the messes for the rich, powerful, and famous. And, you know, this is a real job that you can see in action. Anytime you read any kind of news about a powerful person who's been accused of something terrible, you're going to find a crisis manager in there somewhere. Whether or not their name gets mentioned in the story, they're there. Mm-hmm. You made it up. Okay, now I don't feel so bad about not being familiar with the term because I've studied publicity a little bit and I was surprised. How come I've never heard of a black bag publicist? you got to get that copyrighted. Well, you know, uh, partially it was inspired by the fact that John le Carre, uh, when he wrote Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy, invented the term mole to describe a spy who's undercover in another spy organization. And now that has literally become you know, a term that intelligence communities use to describe that. And I was like, if I can actually make this term stick and get used in context where the people aren't referring to my book, I'll I'll feel like I've kind of made a little stamp in a way that not every author gets to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that moment is coming sooner than you think, I believe. May works for one of the most powerful crisis PR firms in Los Angeles. What does she think of her job and of her employer? 
Well, May, like a lot of the characters that I write about, is someone who does bad things and knows that she's doing bad things. I've never really been drawn to the sociopath or the, you know, the hard-hearted person who just does evil things and revels in it or feels nothing. I'm, I'm much more interested in a character like May, who is very good at her job and it pays very well and it is exciting to her, but she does know that she is aiding bad things going on. At the beginning of the book, she doesn't see an alternative to that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't see any alternative to that at all. Uh, but that's who May is, is somebody who's very good at something that is not very good to do. Mm-hmm. I'm curious that you, you mentioned that you don't really like sociopaths uh, type characters. Is that because they're too sort of one note, too dim- not dimensional enough for you? Well, it's just, it's uninteresting to me to to be in the mind of somebody who doesn't have any conflict about what they do. And I think, to me, uh, you know, someone like May, I think, s- speaks to the way a lot of us feel when we live our lives that we kind of know aren't really making the world a better place uh, when you put do all the math. And, and I think it's a very modern feeling to kind of feel trapped and unable to make the world a better place, even if you want it to be that way. And, and that we end up going through these motions uh, in a way that I think a sociopath is, is someone I want to be a villain who, whose head I don't get into because there are sociopaths in the world and I, you know, they're a very big problem. But uh, that's just not somebody I want to spend a whole book with in their heads. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, although I find them interesting, yeah, I, don't, I think a whole book on a sociopath could get a little, a little tiresome after a while. The opening chapter of Everybody Knows takes place at the famous Chateau Marmond Hotel in L.A., which, of course, is where John Belushi passed. And you actually wrote this chapter in one of the hotel's bungalows. Why? Well, you know, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, this is a modern term, but uh, forgive me, I'm a big believer in vibes. I'm a big believer in getting the the atmosphere right, not just the, the sights and sounds, but the feeling of something and, and trying to transmit that. And I don't know a better way of doing that than going to the place that you're writing about and sitting there and, and living in it. And I did it, you're right, I did check into the Chateau Marmont for a couple of days uh, to start the book. Um, but I also, you know, wrote in a lot of other places, that's the beauty of a laptop is you can get in your car and you can drive to Koreatown. You know, you can, you can drive out to the beach and take a look. You can, you can see what's there. And a a big part of this was trying to capture as much of Los Angeles in a book as I could. And part of doing that means, you know, going to those places and seeing those things that if you just try and imagine it, you wouldn't know are there. Hmm. Yeah, very well said. How do you think your opening chapter would have been different if you had not written it at the Chateau Marmont? Well, there are there are concrete details in there that, again, I think uh, there's a moment when May passes through the, the grotto of the Chateau Marmont, and it's so peaceful and, and so quiet and so beautiful, but there is a Buddha statue at the at the foot of a pond, and it's been knocked over, and its head has come off in the fall, and it's just this little warning sign that, you know, the, the world isn't as pretty as, as they want you to think it is. Uh, and that happened while I was there. I saw a knocked over Buddha. And those are those little details that, that you, you know, maybe you could make that up if you were just sitting there staring at the wall. But if you can manage to go to a place and, and feel the things that, that people are feeling when they're there, it just works a lot better. And, and also, you know, with one exception, uh, every celebrity named in the book is a celebrity I have seen in the place that I saw them. So everybody who's mentioned 
in the first chapter at being at the Chateau were there the night that I went there. And, uh, and again, that's that kind of, uh, realism that to me, realism is not the goal of writing, but it's a tool of writing. It helps create a world that feels very real and lived in. And that's what I really wanted to, to show to people who might not ever get to go inside the Chateau Marmont. I want them to feel what it's like to be there. And I think while I have a good imagination, I hope, I think that, you know, nothing is better than actually being there and, and getting to experience that. It's, it's a privilege to be able to do that. And I'm aware of that. But I think if you can do it, it's a great thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you, you most definitely can do it. I was surprised to learn that you like to outline your books because a lot of the writers I've talked to have said that if they did outline their plots, they'd lose the element of surprise that keeps them writing. Why do you prefer to outline your stories? Well, because first of all, because this what I was trained to do in television, television is always outlined, always planned. Mm-hmm. And, and so I got very comfortable doing that. But I also think there's a certain level of intricacy that you cannot achieve if you're just going ahead and, and hoping that, you know, it makes sense when you're done. Uh, and that's what I was really going for, particularly with this book, was a, with a, was a complex plot that, that dovetailed together pretty perfectly. Uh, and I'm very comfortable with uh, building a skeleton and then finding a lot of my creativity uh, on the page while I'm writing. I might do an outline that says, you know, May goes to the Chateau, and has to deal with problems with Hannah Heard, but I'm still doing plenty of invention, uh, you know, on the page and in, in rewrites. And I, a lot of my creativity comes out in the deep revision stages. Uh, my early drafts are very poorly written. Uh, and I don't say that with any shame. They're, they're just blueprints for the book that I'm going to write. In fact, uh, I think of my, my finished first drafts as really just a very detailed, messy outline. How did you go about outlining the complete plot of Everybody Knows? I actually did something that I had never done before with this book. I had just been in a TV writer's room and in TV writer's rooms, you know, it's a it's a room full of of writers. But you also have somebody called a writer's room assistant who's the person who takes notes and helps organize everybody's thoughts. And right as I was getting ready to start writing this book, the room that I was in ended and I had uh, been working with this uh, great writer's room assistant named Andrew Bain, who is thanked at the end of the novel. And I asked him if he would be interested in coming over and working with me for a week and helping me organize my thoughts. So uh, it was really an invaluable uh, experience because, again, you know, this is a very complicated book in plot, but I hope it doesn't read as very complicated because I took such care in making sure that the story was properly supported and, and doesn't get confusing. And that's the reaction people have had to it so far. So I'm glad about that. But no, a- Andrew helped me organize my thoughts and make sure that I had a complete story that, that made sense and had good twists. And so that's something I'm, I'm going to try and do in the future if I can. Again, it's a real privilege to be around these kind of people and be able to, to utilize them. And I'm aware of that. Mm-hmm. And I understand you're a big fan of James Elroy, who is kind of the godfather of L.A. fiction. What does Elroy's work mean to you? Well, you're right. In this book, uh, the, the stamp of Elroy is very heavy in this. And uh, he is uh, one of my literary heroes, um, and uh, to the point that my dog is named Elroy. <laughs> uh, and I had actually just gotten the, the opportunity of a lifetime a little before starting this book, which was I got a chance to try to adapt his L.A. Confidential into a TV show. And it was a really amazing experience. And I, I we did get to shoot a pilot. Unfortunately, it didn't go to series. 
but it was great and I got to meet him, which was huge for me. I think that Elroy is one of the great American writers, particularly in, in the middle of his run of like L.A. Confidential and White Jazz and American Tabloid, where he's telling these incredibly pulpy, heightened stories about Los Angeles and America that I think say more and say more accurately about our country uh, than, some, than some very, you know, realistic um, kind of calmer works do. Because I think America and Los Angeles as a great American city are, are, are pulpy places that are electric and alive and, and kind of crazy to be in the middle of. And I think Elroy captures that as well as any writer ever has. And, and that's why I, I, I spend so much of my time kind of studying him and what he does and why if there's somebody's fingerprints you can see on this book, then aren't mine. They are his. Mm-hmm. We're big Megan Abbott fans, and I know you are too. You've said that you could use more Megan Abbott in your writing style. What do you, what do you mean? Well, you know, I think you know, as much as I, I talk about James Elroy, I, I feel like Megan Abbott is the best crime writer working today. And I think... I talked earlier about vibe. We're trying to catch a tone. And, and to me, Megan Abbott, from page one of one of her books, you just fall face forward into it. She, she, she paints a dream that is so vivid with her word choice and the way that she lives so deeply in the characters and you feel what they feel. And you see not the concrete world that exists, but the world that they see and, and you notice what they notice. And I just think it's really beautiful. And I, I try to kind of exist in a place, I don't know how well I succeed, but I try to exist in a place directly between Elroy and Abbott. And uh, I think that's a, it's a nice, comfy world where I don't see a lot of other people aiming. Um, but to me, you know, she has a new book coming out this year. I'll read it as soon as it comes out. I, I think she's the best one doing it today. Mm-hmm. But, but you think, do you, th- you do think that you, you create a tone with your work, don't you? Or do you not? I absolutely do. I, I try very mm-hmm. hard to. And I think... That, you know, uh, I think that's why I respond to those uh, writers so well is because that is something that I'm very aware of and that I'm trying very hard to do. And I think I succeed and everybody knows. I think it is a specific version of Los Angeles. Again, it's not a a reporter's version of Los Angeles. It's a pulpier, more electric version where everything's sort of happening all at once and happening loudly. But to me, that is the Los Angeles that I think is the Los Angeles of my dreams and I think a lot of other people's. Understood. Jordan Harper, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on Everybody Knows. As Megan Abbott has said, it's L.A. Noir at its most incendiary. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Jordan Harper is the author of Everybody Knows. Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Kyle Edward Ball, Barbara Brandon-Croft, and Jordan Harper. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta or on Twitter at WPR Beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. A duty few men are fit for, but you were born for. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. As a politician, he exceeds even myself. And thanks to you, our alphas. More Beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. So you're the stellar witness. I should have known. <laughs>